It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, August 24th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. No matter where you live in California, it seems affordable housing is in desperately short supply. Tonight, the California Report examines the disparity between a general consensus that low-income housing is needed and a not-in-my-backyard sentiment when developers actually get down to brass tacks. Then, if you've been marking the progress of the new sign on the side of the National Exchange Hotel in downtown Nevada City, you'll want to stick around. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza gets the details from artist Crew Dorsey. That's coming up right after local news and weather. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. San Francisco City Attorney David Chu says he supports the idea of a nonprofit operating a safe drug injection site in San Francisco. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill on Monday that would have approved a pilot program for such sites in San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles, where people could use drugs surrounded by healthcare workers. San Francisco wouldn't fund or operate the site, Chu says, but he says he wouldn't stop one either. New York City has two safe consumption sites that are run by nonprofits rather than the city. Here's Chu. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen the lives that it is saving. I've seen how it is working well within the surrounding community, uh, how it's improving access to care. With the lives that we're losing on the streets, we've got to try something. More than 1,700 people have died in San Francisco from drug overdoses since 2020. Chu says the deaths, as many as two a day now, have to stop. In recent years, the Sacramento region has debated plans for creating thousands of new affordable housing units and shelter spaces for the homeless. But as CAP Radio's Chris Nichols reports, opposition from neighborhood groups has made carrying out those plans a difficult challenge. It's a quiet, quaint little neighborhood. A lot of the homes built in 1930s, 1940s. When they set out to buy a house during the pandemic, James and Macaulay Griffin fell in love with Woodlake, an upscale neighborhood in North Sacramento. But when they learned about plans for a five-story affordable housing complex a couple blocks away, they worried the tranquility they cherished would disappear, with streets possibly clogged with traffic, and cars from the apartment complex parked throughout the neighborhood. Traffic. If I wanted that, I would live downtown or something, you know? <laughs> Many of their neighbors agreed, but the city council, in a narrow vote, gave the project its blessing. While this project will move forward, city leaders and experts say many plans for affordable housing and homeless services never get off the ground, or they're delayed or downsized. That's in part due to pushback from organized neighborhood groups, sometimes referred to as NIMBYs, for their not-in-my-backyard stance on development. UC Berkeley affordable housing expert Carol Galante says this opposition can be a powerful force, one that makes the housing affordability crisis worse. More people can't afford the existing homes, and the prices go up, and people at the bottom of the income spectrum go on the street. Michelle Taylor has lived that reality. Do you have a, a shelter or anything like that that you've been able to connect There's with? There's a shelter that I'm waiting for. Taylor is one of the estimated 9,300 people experiencing homelessness in Sacramento County, a figure that's up 67% over the past three years. 
Seated at Woodlake Park, Taylor says she supports the plans for the nearby affordable housing project because it could provide stability for people like herself. Think about your family, your mother, your children, people that can't help themselves. Sacramento County has a shortfall of nearly 60,000 affordable housing units, and it's also short several thousand homeless shelter spaces, which are typically full on any given night. Galante of UC Berkeley says Californians are more sympathetic today about the affordable housing crisis, but... When it gets down to the individual development that happens to be next door to you, then you're still going to have some opposition. Sacramento City Council member Katie Valenzuela has received pushback in her central city district for supporting affordable housing. She says the projects have an undeniable impact on neighborhoods, but with the right strategies, she says local governments can win over critics. The right way is early engagement, you know, flexibility on things like number of units, number of stories. Still, Valenzuela says... There are some neighbors who will never support affordable housing near them, no matter how much it's needed. But for Woodlake homeowners James and McCullough Griffin, embracing a project with the size and density of the one proposed near them, it just isn't realistic. What we're against is having any apartment complex, whether it is affordable housing, you know, luxury apartments in a very small area. Though the project has already been approved, the couple says they're hoping the developer will respond to neighborhood concerns and scale back the size of the complex. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. With a week left in this year's legislative session in Sacramento, California immigrant advocates are pushing hard for a bill to end the transfer of non-citizens to immigration custody after they're released from jail or prison. KQED's immigration editor, Tyke Hendricks, reports. If the bill known as the Vision Act is to make it to the governor's desk, it has to pass the state Senate this month. One supporter is East Bay Senator Nancy Skinner. She lamented the deportation last week of Cambodian refugee Pun Yu, who had planned to return to Oakland on his release from San Quentin Prison. California's practice of turning our folks who've served their time over to ICE is just cruel and inhumane, and we've got to stop it. Deportation amounts to a second and very unfair punishment. Oregon and Illinois have laws like the Vision Act, but California police and sheriff's groups oppose the bill. For the California Report, 
I'm Tyke Hendricks. And finally this morning, Artie Moreno, the longtime owner of the Los Angeles Angels, says he's exploring the possibility of selling the Orange County team. In a statement, Moreno says it's been an honor and a privilege to own the Angels, but he and his family believe now is the time to consider selling the franchise. Moreno bought the team for more than $180 million from the Walt Disney Company in 2003. While the team had some success in the early years of the Moreno ownership, the Angels have failed to make the playoffs since 2014. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, August 24th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day out there. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. Tonight, a special joint meeting between the boards of directors for Penn Valley and Rough and Ready Fire Protection Districts takes place. This is the first step in negotiating a consolidation or a merger of the two rural fire departments. Prompted by Rough and Ready Fire Protection District's financial situation, the two boards will explore if consolidation could be the answer. If there is mutual interest, they could appoint a committee and formally begin the process. The meeting starts tonight at 6.30 at the Penn Valley Fire Station 43 on Spenceville Road in Penn Valley. In April, Rough and Ready Fire Protection District knew their financial picture was dire. At the time, directors Doug Whitler and Tom Nelson admitted that after paying all the past due obligations, quote, we basically have a zero budget now. In July, the district's board posted a short statement on their website announcing, quote, to ensure fiscal stability, the Rough and Ready Fire Protection District is temporarily suspending staffing two days out of the week on a rotating basis beginning July 15th. This reported by Ubinet. The Nevada County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday unanimously approved the purchase of about an acre of property on Sutton Way, adjacent to the New Brunswick Commons Apartments. The site will serve as a resource center for homeless people who need a range of services, from getting a shower to speaking to a public defender. The county anticipates receiving a state grant to pay for all but $25 of the $2 million property. The building, currently used by an accountant, could be open by appointment only by the new year. It should be fully open by April, says Mike Dent, the county's director of housing and child support services. The county has been looking for a site for a resource center for about four years. This 7,000-plus square foot location is near both Hospitality House and Brunswick Commons. District 2 Supervisor Ed Schofield worries that the facility would centralize homeless people in the area, adding that mitigation is needed. District 3 Supervisor Dan Miller agrees. He says he likes the concept but wants to ensure it doesn't become a homeless camp. This reported by the Union of Grass Valley. Yosemite National Park has seen its fair share of used gas canisters. People fuel their camping stoves and lanterns, and when the containers are spent, they tend to pile up on the ground near dumpsters, despite there being special recycling bins for the empty propane canisters. To cut down on the pileups and reduce overall waste, Yosemite pulled single-use canisters from shelves and park stores two years ago. Now, the park sells only refillable tanks and runs an exchange program. That type of system could soon become the norm for campers everywhere in California. A first-in-the-nation bill headed to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk this week would ban the sale of disposable one-pound propane cylinders in California by 2028. The state assembly and senate both approved the legislation, SB 1256, last week and advocates are hopeful Newsom will sign it into law before the legislative session ends August 31st. 
If SB 1256 becomes law, it would trigger a five-year period for retailers and manufacturers to phase out single-use cylinders, beginning in January 2023. Last year, about 24,000 single-use propane canisters were counted in Yosemite, not including any that might have wound up in trash cans. This from the San Francisco Chronicle. Turning our attention to your local weather and your air quality index. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, Tonight, clear with a low around 64. Thursday, sunny skies with a high near 91. Current air quality is satisfactory with an AQI of 1. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear with a low around 49. Thursday, sunny with a high near 83. Current air quality is satisfactory with an AQI of 0. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, clear with a low around 61. Thursday, sunny and hot with a high near 96. Current air quality is satisfactory as well, with an AQI of 25. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. If you've been in downtown Nevada City any time in the past few weeks, you may have noticed someone clad in all-white, Elevated high up in a cherry picker, working on the side of the National Exchange Hotel. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza speaks to the artist about the three-year saga for Nevada City's newest edition. It's done! The National Exchange Hotel has a new sign. Designed by Andrea and Rich Good and painted by Crew Dorsey with help from Kent Hardenbrook, visitors to downtown Nevada City are now welcomed by a mural hand-painted in black, white, and gold. I caught up with Crew Dorsey a few days before he finished and asked him about his process and about some of the controversy that surrounded the painting. My name is Crew Dorsey and I am sign painting the new National Exchange Hotel uh, signage on the east wall. Could you describe what it is that you're painting on the side of the National? Oh my goodness. Um, It is a Victorian ornate traditional lettered sign. So... Um, You'll see that there's clearly some lettering on there, um, and around that um, is like filigree or scrolls or what some painters may call them. Um, That's usually considered for like decorative bordering and things like that. So essentially you uh, lay out the letters and then try and decorate the letters with these uh, filigree elements. Um, And what you'll see on the top is essentially the brand new national exchange like logo insignia and then what runs vertically down the banner is a little message to everybody that says welcome to nevada city and did you come up with that design no i did not um so uh andrea and rich good um are two of the main designers that had worked between the national and the holbrook um the two of them had gone back and forth between um, the city permitting and, and everything that Uh, required approval, uh, the design actually went through several iterations, colorways, sizes. Um, It really had quite a few evolutions before what we see today. Um, So I really commend them for taking work that was already approved for the job that they took on and continued to iterate it to meet the needs in order for us to have it approved. Um, But yeah, serious respect to the two of them as as designers. Um, They have a wonderful taste in design. So I'm feeling pretty privileged to get to express uh, my skill set by transferring their art onto the wall. 
there's a lot of steps that go into painting a sign that big. I asked him to explain a bit of his process. Yeah, so obviously there's like an internal team of people that are kind of like vetting the art prior to it going to city and any type of like uh, council that needs to review it. Um, so that would be the kind of the process there in that step. And then once the city was approved, uh, that's when I got the email that we could now revise our initial proposals, look at the new art um, and begin to uh, bid the job, you know, um, due to this being something that was prolonged three years. Um, and being post-COVID, we've had a lot of price changes and things like that as far as the materials go that I'm utilizing. So uh, so then we you know, evaluate everything that's going to go into it, time and materials. Um, from there, the, you know, uh, the client, the national, uh, goes about approving that. And then from there, I receive the finalized art. Um, that art's received in what's called like a vector file format, and that means it has infinite scalability. So I can make the art any size um, that I please. And then so with that file, that enables me to then um, scale the art to be specific to the dimensions that uh, I survey from the site. And so upon surveying those dimensions, I can then scale the art accordingly to fit the wall. I shoot a photograph of the wall and mock that, um, that art on top of it to create a digital um, concept. Then I have that approved by the client to make sure scaling and size and everything is still correct and following within the parameters we receive from the city. Uh, and then at that point, I take that art and have that printed into templates. And those templates um, for this particular piece is about 120 linear square feet. And so once those are printed out, then I hand cut all of those templates with an X-Acto knife uh, with every single element that you'll see on the wall later. And uh, once we've done that, we place those templates onto the wall. We take a pencil and then mark in those template lines that I had previously cut. Once we've done all the marking and everything on the wall, we essentially go straight to paint. Um, this particular instance, though, with the building being as old as it is, we found ourselves having to do uh, quite a bit of restoration work and hole filling and things of that sort in order to have a surface that was smooth enough for us to create some of the ornate details that we have. So that was a little bit of a caveat on this one. Um, my process stands as I spoke to it, but uh, that was a little bit of a hiccup and something to expect with these older buildings. So, What are you using? What kind of paints are you using? And, and is it brushwork? Is it spraying? So yeah, that's a great question. Um, no spraying involved. That's for a multitude of reasons. Um, really number one is just the liability of overspray. You know, getting on other buildings, people's vehicles and things like that. Um, so in a particular location like this, that's so urban focused. So this is a 100% done with brushes and rollers. Um, the only time the rollers are used is to do the large backfill colors. But yeah, so it's all brushwork. And then as far as the paints go, um, actually not special paint at all. Historically, people would expect uh, signs to be painted with like oil or acrylic. Um, but due to the fact that this wall already has an existing latex paint on it, and because it sits on an east-facing sun-rising wall, um, we couldn't apply oil or acrylic atop of the latex because oil or acrylic essentially doesn't have mal malleability and so it uh, cracks over time and so we are using standard exterior latex paint that you would expect on any home um, it is the highest end of the paint so this particular paint will come with um, primers and sealers and things of that sort in it so it's certainly for more commercial and industrial use 
Um, and then the gold that uh, you'll see in the art is a bit of a specialty paint in the sense that it's not often that you find metallic paint that's made in latex. And so that's a bit of a specialty paint that we had to source and hope that it would arrive here on time. And fortunately it did. It's a beautiful paint. And if if I can mention it's up close and unfortunately most people won't see up close but when you see it, it looks like gold nuggets on the wall due to the wall being so textured. So I can't help but to think that it's appropriate for some of the traditional history that's lied here. So my understanding is that there was a bit of controversy about having a sign painted on there. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll start by saying I wrote the contract for this sign in 2019, and it's 2022 today. So uh, three years is what it took um, to, you know, find a persuasive vote. Um, you know, I definitely understand a lot of the community concerns and kind of like divided opinions on it, just in the sense of once you, once you allow something like this, it can, um, how do I put this, maybe just enable people to know that it's a possibility now. And I think that that worries the community to see that we may have, you know, buildings littered with um, maybe just art that's too vibrant. So that that's what I know of is that there was a lot of conflict there, but really that all that all is rooted in the original historic regulations for square footage for signage, and um, you know. So at the end of the day, that's just uh, old legislation that we're just working around, and and that comes with a lot of people's beliefs and reasons why it should or shouldn't change, and so you know that obviously prolonged a lot of that process, and you know I really do think the community members that came out and, and really just supported everything about this and, and took the time to express like a level of interest and, and effort to make this a possibility because this really is an honor for me to do and I feel uh, really quite proud to leave a mark, especially in a local community of mine. So um, yeah, as conflicted as it was and it, as much as we had to go back and forth to make it happen, I'm, I'm certainly grateful that it has come to fruition, and I hope that everybody can appreciate it, um, even for those that maybe weren't in support, can see it now and, and think about it differently. And what's next for you, crew? Um, pretty much just go back to my normal, uh, my normal work. So uh, just to preface, I actually usually only do about one sign a year, and they tend to be really big. Um, they're such an intensive job. And I'm normally a graphic and web designer and run a um, graphic design and marketing agency. So... After this, I'll go back to that, working for assorted local businesses um, that I work for. And yeah, that's pretty much the next step. And where can people see your work? Where can people get a hold of you? Oh, yeah. Um, so just my name. Um, really, you could search that on just about any like social media. Uh, Crew Dorsey, C-R-U-D-O-R-S-E-Y. So you could find uh, find me at my website, which is crewdorsey.com, or Instagram, Crew Dorsey, LinkedIn, Crew Dorsey, all those. Just uh, search my name on that platform, and you ought to find me. There's not many of those names out there. Crew, thanks a lot for taking your time out, man. Yeah, I really appreciate you too, Claudio. It's nice to uh, get some of this out there and let the community hear every side of it. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, August 24th. Visit us online at kvmr.org or on Facebook and Instagram. That's where you'll see some incredible photos of Crew Dorsey's work on the National Hotel sign. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and A to Z Hardware Supply and Garden Center, locally owned since 1984. 
offering household construction essentials plus April's Garden, a memorial lawn and garden nursery for all seasons, with beekeeping and canning supplies. Ridge Road, Grass Valley, A to Z Supply.com, and Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutts, family owned for 18 years, providing cat and dog wellness needs, including holistic organic food training accessories, toys, also fresh bakery. Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutts, next to BNC Hardware, Grass Valley. Keep it tuned to your community radio station. Coming up at 6.30, it's the Sages Among Us. Tonight, host Holly Grimaldi Flores speaks with the new Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital Foundation Executive Director, Sandra Barrington. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Thursday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.